Science Fiction University. Hello and welcome to Science Fiction University. This week, While You Were Sleeping, a deep dive into themes of time travel brought about by the biological process of falling asleep and waking up in a time or place unexpected. We are your fan and writer hosts. I'm Blue Gal. And I'm Driftglass. And you can visit Science Fiction University at our website, sciencefictionuniversity.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There's a Patreon button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution at Science Fiction University, P.O. Box 9133, Springville, Illinois, 62791. Warning, this episode contains spoilers for the original 1968 Planet of the Apes, Idiocracy, Groundhog Day. And we may touch on a few other examples of While You Were Sleeping in science fiction. Planet of the Apes is available on Netflix and Disney+. Plus. Idiocracy can be found on Hulu and Netflix. And I think there's at least one cable channel that does nothing all day but run the Groundhog Day back to back over and over and over again. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> Today we're talking about stories where the main character falls asleep and wakes up in an unexpected situation. What differentiates these sleeping stories from post-apocalyptic or time travel stories is that even though they may involve leaping forward in time, and in some cases into a world where some planetary disaster has occurred, the protagonist was not witness to the events and has no observable way to get back to where they started. These are largely fables about escaping something. Usually it's grief or peril. Wouldn't it be great if we could just sleep through sadness or danger and wake up once the danger had passed or what had been destroyed had been rebuilt? And while they're not technically science fiction, they do lay the groundwork for the science fiction stories that we're going to be talking about today. A very specific kind of time travel story, but not the kind we've talked about in previous episodes. The time travel is strictly one way, forward. And whatever dramatic changes may have happened to the world are not part of our protagonist's experience. He or she is, to borrow a phrase from Captain America, a person out of time. To get a running start at this theme, we're going to start all the way back in the 3rd century AD, aren't you glad, with <laughs> Greek historian Diogenes Laertes, who told the story of Epimedius of Gnosis, a shepherd on the island of Crete who followed after a sheep that had wandered off, which sounds very biblical to me. Mm -hmm. After becoming tired, he ducked into a cave for a short nap, woke up, and continued looking for the sheep but couldn't find it. So he went back to his father's farm, only to discover that a different family lived there now. Back in his hometown, nobody knew him. Very tough day for Epimedius of Gnosis. There's a similar story in the Christian tradition, heading into a cave, falling asleep, etc., called The Seven Sleepers of Ephesius, a fable about a group of early Christians who hid in a cave right around 250 AD to escape persecution during the reign of Roman Emperor Decius and woke up 200 years later during the reign of Theodosius II, to discover, yay, that the city and the whole empire had become Christian. So that was a very good day for them. A good day for those Christians, yeah, mm -hmm. with cultural dominance, right. <laughs> uh, but this basic theme appears across cultures. There's an Islamic tradition that has the story of Uzair, whose grief at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians was so great that God took his soul and brought him back to life after Jerusalem was reconstructed. 
There was also such a story in the Jewish lore, and there's a Hindu variation. Ireland, of course, has its own variation and so forth. The secular American version that came out of all these traditions is Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle, which borrowed heavily from a German folktale called Peter Klaus. A guy skips out on his nagging wife, goes drinking in the mountains with a group of strangers. Uh, In Rip Van Winkle, they're all ornately dressed, bearded, and completely silent while playing nine pins. And then Rip Van Winkle falls asleep for 20 years. So let's go over the plot summary, the major plot points and major characters in Planet of the Apes. Uh, Planet of the Apes is a 1968 movie adaptation. That's the version we're doing. Uh, adapted by Rod Serling from the 1963 novel by Pierre Boulle. It stars Charlton Heston as a 20th century astronaut, George Taylor, Kim Hunter, and Roddy McDowell as the sympathetic uh, chimpanzee scientists, Zira and Cornelius, and Maurice Evans as the villain, the orangutan minister of science, Dr. Zaius. Taylor and three other astronauts are put into suspended animation for the long journey to another star system. Upon landing, they find that their female crewmate has died in transit, and the planet seems barren and lifeless. Eventually, they find food and water and a tribe of primitive humans, and then discover that intelligent apes rule the planet, and that humans are kept in zoos or used as experimental animals or killed off as pests. Taylor's existence is a threat to the ape social order and religion. Eventually, Taylor escapes with the help of Zira and Cornelius, and in the famous finale, discovers that he has been on Earth all along. Now, Planet of the Apes was a huge success at the time for both critics and audiences, and one of that year's 10 biggest moneymakers in North America, taking in an estimated $22 million, which was, at the time, nearly four times its budget. We have a family story to tell you about Planet of the Apes, because we watched it uh Several years ago, about 10 years ago, with our children and uh, our seven-year-old, who's very bright, uh, for the first time watching Planet of the Apes. And we're so excited because we get to see it through her eyes Mm -hmm. and the surprise ending. And we're just thrilled that, you know, here's this Doctor Who fan, Mm -hmm. by the way, who's going to watch Planet of the Apes 1968 and, you know, be inducted into this world of... Finding this surprise ending. And she's watching and the spaceship crashes in the pond and Taylor and his, uh, you know, shipmates get out and are walking around. They haven't discovered the uh, people on the planet yet. They're just sort of walking around this desert area and youngest middle child, excuse me, middle child says, this has to be Earth. There must be photosynthesis on this planet because they're breathing air. Damn it. <laughs> we just looked at each other like, oh, this is terrible. No, no, Santa Claus is real. Santa no, Claus that's is real. real. Don't, don't ruin it for us. Yeah, she it, just got she, it right away. Well, yeah. I, I considered it my mission to uh, corrupt the youth by poisoning mm-hmm. their brains with science fiction from a very young age. Right. So it was this and uh, Lost and Battlestar Galactica and Doctor right. Who and yep. basically any any science fiction that was on. We watched uh, Twilight Zone a lot, Lost in Space for a while. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. And, and once she sort of became self-sustaining in looking for this stuff. I well, felt, she fell in love with Matt Smith as oh, yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. So, you know, she, little, little seven-year-old crush with her fez and her red yeah. bow tie. And, of course. Well, and, and she found her doctor, as we all do. Yes, she found her doctor. Mm-hmm. Yes, she did. 
Well, let's talk for a minute. Uh, let's get through these three movies that okay. we really want to focus on. Uh, let's let's talk about Idiocracy for a moment. All right. Idiocracy was released in 2006, directed by Mike Judge and co-written by Judge and Eden Cohen. It stars Luke Wilson, Maya Rudolph, and Dax Shepard. Wilson plays a completely average American soldier who takes part in a classified hibernation experiment and is accidentally frozen for too long and wakes up 500 years later in a dystopian world where everyone is an idiot and commercialism has all but destroyed the planet. Now, there's a background to this movie that's that's really not too pleasant. Uh, there's ample evidence that when 20th Century Fox figured out what kind of movie they were actually making, they sabotaged the project by refusing to screen it for critics and giving it minimal distribution and virtually no promotion, which resulted in it bombing financially, doing only $495,000 gross box office. However, once the reviewers saw it, they got very good reviews from critics, and uh, it's become a cult film. And it is now, I would say, a cultural touchstone because oh, yeah. idiocracy is used all the time Yeah, at when it's clear that commercialism is taking over from common sense in our culture, that uh, that movie gets brought up a lot. And something about the last five years or so has really <laughs> made it. Uh, <laughs> it really made that movie perfect. Especially yes. the, the cabinet uh, of the president of the uh, world. Uh, Being who were, total who were just idiots. Total yes. idiots. Yeah. <laughs> And totally incompetent, yes. Uh, now, Idiocracy owes 80% of its plot to a very dark science fiction short story entitled The Marching Morons. Would you tell us about that, Drift Glass? Sure. I, I love this story. Uh, it was one of the ones that I read early on going, oh, oh, you can talk about all kinds of shit with science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, it was written by Cyril M. Kornbluth, C.M. Kornbluth, and originally published in Galaxy Magazine in April of 1951. I just love bringing that up online. People say, have you seen Idiocracy? It's very, I said, have you read The Marching Morons from 1951? That's a very mm -hmm. long time ago. So mm -hmm. someone saw this coming a long time ago. And in it, the protagonist named John Barlow is put into suspended animation by a freak dental accident. Oh, no. I hate when that happens. Yes, I know. He's at the dentist. He's having anesthesia. There's a spark and boom. And his body is like moved around for centuries as a museum piece. Um, and he wakes up several hundred years later to find the world is populated by idiots and everything sucks. Uh, however, unlike Idiocracy in Cornblue's story, there's a small group of elites who work to keep everything from falling apart completely. Now, Bartlow was a real estate con man and crook back where he came from, and he offers to sell the elites a solution to their problem in exchange for being made world dictator. Who doesn't want that job? The solution he offers is basically... Have any of you guys ever heard of a man named Hitler? And they hadn't. And he lays out his plan to con the stupids into signing up for a new and better life on Venus, which they market as a tropical paradise uh, with like blanket trees and ham ponds and all kinds of goodies. They're just laying around for them. And then they'll cram them into uh, uh, leaky tin cans and fire them into space to die. That's the plan. Genocide. In the end, the world government turns on him and packs him into one of the Venus rockets and that is the end of Mr. Barlow. Mm. Now, in Idiocracy, there's no secret world government. There's no genocidal plan. Instead, the protagonist, Joe, discovers that the quote-unquote time machine he was told existed was just a broken-down carnival ride. Eventually, Joe is elected president of the idiots, solves the nation's man-made ecological crisis, and marries Rita, the other suspended animation experimental subject. And then Joe and Rita conceive the world's three smartest children. Happy ending. 
Happy ending. Mm -hmm. And comedy. I mean, it's mostly played for comedy. It's also a tremendous social satire. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) very much so. It makes it makes it very clear um, that certain people should not uh, be running things or having children. Well, and I also love how you know it's a professional wrestler who's elected yes to be to lead the world yes, and his instincts for getting a crowd riled up. Mm-hmm. I mean, hint hint to the last five years mm-hmm. are very good. He's very good at getting a crowd riled up. Yes, uh, the- but he's not very good at uh, food management. The things that people actually need to survive. Right. Yeah. In case you haven't uh, seen it, this is the this is a spoiler show. Uh, yeah. The the crops have been ruined because they're putting um, <laughs> Brondo on them because Brondo. Brondo has what plants need: electrolytes, which is killing everything, killing killing the soil. It's obviously salt water, yeah. and it's killing all the food supply. Mm-hmm. And, and but Brondo is what plants crave. And since the ad says that, you must put it on the plants. Sure. And and when Joe suggests, you know, try putting water on the plants. What do you mean? Like out the toilet? Yeah, and, and out of just, the toilet? Oh. And, and this is, <laughs> mind you, this guy was selected for the experiment because he was absolutely average. He, he was a slacker. He was lazy. Yeah. He didn't want to do much and of he anything. he was dispensable. Right. He was dispensable. Right. And he right. wakes up in the world where he is the smartest man on earth by a lot. By mm-hmm. a long shot, mm-hmm. it's got it packs a punch and it's well worth your time. And uh, it was obviously torpedoed because it was saying too much about contemporary times for <laughs> 20th Century Fox to cope with. Well, let's talk about the most classic movie, yeah. the, the classic of the of the lot. Mm-hmm. Although I think Planet of the Apes is a classic as well, but Groundhog Day is such a classic. Uh, that's a 1993 film directed by the amazing Harold Ramis and written by Ramis and Danny Rubin. It stars Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, and Chris Elliott. Murray plays Phil Connors. Phil. Phil? (laughs) Phil Connors? Phil. Mm -hmm. Uh, A cynical TV weatherman assigned to cover the annual Groundhog Day Festival in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. Now, with absolutely no explanation, Phil becomes trapped in a time loop that forces him to relive February 2nd over and over again. Nothing ever changes except Phil, who retains his memory of the previous loops every time the day repeats. Uh, With Planet of the Apes and Idiocracy, the interval during which the protagonist is asleep is hundreds of years or thousands of years. But here it's just one day, the Mm -hmm. same day. He wakes up every morning the same day, which is why we believe it qualifies for this category. The protagonist awakes into a world that he was not expecting over which he has no control, and from which there seems to be no escape. No way back. Uh, Groundhog Day is subtle and mature science fiction, following Phil from the comic libertine possibilities of living each day without fear of consequences. Uh, you want to talk a little bit more about this? Oh, yeah. He eats whatever he wants. Uh, he he commits crimes. He uh, goes on a series of sexual conquests. Um all by learning details about people solely over time so he can con them or steal from them or rip them off. He he goes to breakfast and orders everything on the menu and just stuffs his face. And after a while, he just stops caring about telling people about what's going on. Mm-hmm. He tells, mm-hmm. you know, he tells his soon to be uh, his, his love interest. I'm a God. It doesn't matter what I do. I can eat whatever I want, drink whatever I want. I just don't care. And it's extremely um, hedonistic. What the hell? I, I got nothing to lose and I, I can't die apparently. So why not, you know, blow every day, do whatever the hell I want and just satisfy my most 
uh, carnal and um, impulses and animalistic urges until he gets bored. And mm-hmm. then he gets really bored. And then comes, this is why it's such a mature piece of fiction. Then mm-hmm. comes his suicidal despair mm-hmm. over not being able to get out of it. It just happens over and over and over again. Uh, and he tries every way he can think of to kill himself and he can't do it. And now he's truly doomed because he can't escape and he can't die. And eventually he comes to accept that this might go on forever. And when that happens, he devotes himself to memorizing every detail of the town and its people so he can help them all. He catches a kid falling out of the tree and he saves the mayor, who's played by his brother, by the way, from choking. Uh, He gives a gift to a young couple uh, who are on their honeymoon, gives them tickets to WrestleMania, which is what they wanted. And in the process, he falls madly in love, deeply, deeply in love with Rita finally realizing that just being with her and doing good is enough to make him happy. Mm-hmm. And that's what breaks the spell. And then they wake yep. up and it's February 3rd. And that's how the movie ends. It's a wonderful movie, which it I just spoiled movie. for you completely, but deal with it. Everyone's seen this movie four times, so I'm not telling you anything you don't already <laughs> you know. You better have seen it four times by now, we hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two movies that have come out in the past uh, couple of years. One came out very recently. I just watched it called The Map of Tiny Perfect Things, which is a young story of young love, teen love. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's interesting from the standpoint that it assumes all of the knowledge of Groundhog Day. This mm-hmm. man just the first day wakes up in a loop and you just you know exactly what's happened because you have the vocabulary of Groundhog Day to know mm-hmm. that, oh, he's in a loop. Okay. <laughs> and then he meets a girl and the girl is also in the same loop, but everyone else isn't. And so it's sort of, it's a lot of Groundhog Day, but there's a little sprinkling of um, Fault in Our Stars. It's that John Green kind of, uh, yeah. you know, motif of two young lovers. Um, there's another one that's a little more campy called Palm Springs, which uh, is also time loop and time travel. And these this couple are the only two always winding up at the same wedding. Um, and, and that's a comedy. So, uh, well, you know, this one motif more, goes on. There's yeah. one more I'd like to mention, which came up in our – we play online trivia uh, once oh, a week yeah. or so. Yeah, yeah. Russian Doll. Russian Doll. Which exactly. Is a, which is a that's time a good loop. one. A time yep. loop. And, and once – it became okay to do stories like this. Mm-hmm. It it became an exciting little subgenre all of its own. Yeah, which and is Russian Doll's really good if you haven't wonderful. seen it. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I think the map of tiny perfect things is okay. It's mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, but you have to accept it on its on its merits as a teen love movie. So, so Blue Gal, tell me yeah. what do these stories all have in common? Well. They all have a point of view of a kind of everyman, an average person. I mean, I I realize Charlton Heston is Charlton Heston and he's an astronaut in this, but he is also representing humanity in this movie. He is the point of view of the movie and he's an American and he's cynical, which in 1968 was everybody. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, and, and he was part of the space program, which is also something that was very much going on in 1968. So uh, I think he represented uh, our culture at that point. And the same with uh, Idiocracy. You know, it is just an average guy. It's someone who uh, was chosen to go into this situation, but didn't know what he was going to face. He's not 
extraordinary. He is there to be the perspective on a world gone mad. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with Groundhog Day. Phil... Uh, is not a character that's very likable at the no. beginning of the movie. Phil's an asshole. <laughs> Phil's he's an, an asshole. He's an asshole. And, and he's, I mean, like yeah. a, he's like a smarmy, you know, local mm-hmm. weatherman. He's, you know, yeah. he's a big, big uh, fish in a small pond uh, who who just looks down at everyone around him. And, I, and I'm not saying that our, our listeners are that way, but he is a completely relatable character. Yeah, he's someone he is relatable. Absolutely. He know. hates his job. Yeah. His job's a go nowhere job. And uh, he's got to go do this stupid thing with the groundhog that he doesn't believe in and have any uh, attraction to the charm of this stupid town. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a weatherman and, and the weather is, you know, boring. <laughs> so, yeah, he's sort of he's already sort of stuck. I think that's that's something that comes out in the movie at the beginning yeah. is, you know, this guy's already stuck in a loop. Well, and, and, um, and none of these three men and they're all three white men yeah. are are. are aware of their privilege no exactly Um, they are not aware of their privilege until it's taken away Mm -hmm. yeah 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 uh and we do identify with them i mean we identify with uh how horrible it is for uh taylor to be put in a cage and treated like an animal Mm -hmm. uh we certainly identify with joe and the stupidity of everything around him um and we eventually identify with phil and how horrible it is that a, people around him are stupider than he is because he knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Bill Murray is so perfect in this movie. Um, and then uh, we identify with his growth. I mean, that's the difference about Groundhog Day. I think that's why what makes Groundhog Day such a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about why these stories actually work. Because we're talking about very mundane human activities. Yeah. Uh, sleeping is something everybody does. Yes, boring. And, but we, but tell us about what, why you don't start a short story with "I woke up." Ever, I have ever had no don't fewer, do that. I've had no fewer than <laughs> seventy-five writing teachers tell me never, ever, ever start a story with "I rolled out of bed and shut off the alarm" because mm-hmm. it is it is the worst, is the dullest possible way to start a story. You're not starting in the middle of anything. You're not mm-hmm. dropping mm-hmm. in in medias rest unless you have a whole novel that you're going to, that it's imperative that you begin at exactly this point. It's just a terrible and lazy place to start. It, it tells the audience, you don't know what you're doing. And, mm-hmm. and unless you have the most fascinating character in the world, you know, the, the, the rule is, you know, shoot the sheriff on the first page. Mm-hmm. You know, the rule is mm-hmm. get your audience's attention and nothing is more mundane uh, and more kind of like, why do I care? than some man or woman waking up. Um, but it works in these stories. Um, and it specifically works because you're doing the mundane thing. You're going to sleep. In this, in 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 one case, it's in two cases, it's going into suspended animation. But it, it was intended to be a controlled experiment. You go to sleep for a while. You wake up where you're supposed to be. Um, in the case of Planet of the Apes, you're going to be on a, a the star that you are headed towards. I, I believe it was Alpha Centauri. I could be wrong, but it, it that's part of the plan. In uh, Idiocracy, it's, it's a short-term experiment. It's a medical experiment to see if you can freeze a soldier for you know, a week or a month or whatever and just wake him up. And Joe's like, yeah, okay, whatever. As long as I get out of duty, that's great with me. Mm-hmm. It's deliberately a mundane activity where, you know, at the beginning of Planet of the Apes, you see them going to sleep. Um, and then disaster strikes. The next shot is the ship crashing, the ship flooding. Holy shit, we're in the wrong place. Um, water's rushing in. Hurry, 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 get out. Our uh, woman is dead. Yeah. 
Don't forget that part. The woman is yeah, dead. But... And she's not just dead. She is mummified. Mm-hmm. She's been mm-hmm. dead for a really long time. And he gets to look at the clock, the the counter, and they realizes they've been, they have gone wildly off course mm-hmm. and have no idea where they are. And thousands of years have passed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fucked, pardon my language, but this is an yeah. adult content show. They are completely screwed. And same thing with Idiocracy. I mean, it takes it takes Joe a while to figure out what's going on, but he literally, there's a, a garbage quake. <laughs> and the giant pile of garbage that he's in um, uh, avalanches into uh, one of the character's apartments, mm-hmm. uh, who's busy mm-hmm. masturbating. And yeah. <laughs> I believe watching the most popular TV show on the world, Ow My Balls, which is a series of people getting hit in the uh, testicles. Groin, which is, in the groin. That's, yes. that's, that's the whole show, <laughs> which we, you know, which was funny at the time. But now there are at least four shows on television where that's literally true. That is literally it. So, yes. Like, it's kind of yes. sad. Um, but to explain why these things work, I want to take the example of Charlton Heston specifically, because he okay. had a, a really good run of science fiction there for a while. He was he was the guy. Um, he was in Planet of the Apes, he was in The Omega Man, uh, and he was in Soylent Green, where he played a very similar sort of character in each case. A competent, cynical loner struggling to survive in the world that he found himself in. Mm-hmm. But in The mm-hmm. Omega Man, he is not surprised by the world he finds himself in because he helped make the world that way. Mm-hmm. And in Soylent Green, he's shocked by the big reveal at the end about Soylent Green being people. But mm-hmm. what really blows his mind is not the state of the world that he finds himself in and, and is perfectly adapted to, but the state of the world as it used to be. Because he goes in to rescue his friend, uh, played by Edward D. Robinson, who has volunteered for euthanasia. He's done with living, and, it's, and there's, a, there's specific locations all over the country uh, where people go to die. And they show you a film. Uh, as you're dying, and only those who have volunteered to die are allowed to see it. And Charlton Heston sees it and it shows him the earth as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, long gone green fields and clean oceans and a world teeming with wildlife. And he, he practically cries. He said, how could I have ever known? How could I know? And he, he, it's, it's, it's stunning to him that the world was ever this beautiful and this full of life. Mm-hmm. And it just knocks mm-hmm. him completely flat. So his big reveal was... The world as it used to be, not as it is. Um, this is the inverse of the bombshell in Planet of the Apes. When his shot comes from the world as he finds it now. Uh, first, when he finds out that apes are running things. And second, when he finds out that he was on Earth all along. And each of these movies work, as we said, because the uh, protagonist is a proxy for us. Seeing for the first time some strange world or inexplicable phenomena that we had no reason to expect would be there when we went to sleep. The protagonists do what we do in their place, try to survive under completely inexplicable circumstances, try to figure out the rules and look for a way out. Let's riff for a minute about character development, because Taylor doesn't change much in Planet of the Apes. He's cocky and cynical at the beginning of the movie. And at the end, he's cocky and cynical. Mm -hmm. Uh, He might he might be distraught over the fact that it's Earth and he's furious that his cohorts back in the 20th century destroyed humanity Mm -hmm. uh but he he is not in in terms of his character and attitude that much different from the beginning of the movie i'd say i'd add one thing Mm -hmm. when he has his famous scene on the beach about you maniacs you blew it all up yeah he never Mm -hmm. really thought they'd do it yeah he never really thought that humanity would actually commit suicide and when it finds Mm. out that that we did it that just that that takes his legs right out from under him 
And he yeah. can't believe yeah. literally that, yeah. that humans actually did what he always thought they would do. He was always cynical, but he was always like, I'm cynical. Life sucks. The world's terrible. I'm leaving because I, I, there's nothing here of interest to me. But he never thought they'd really do it. Because because of self-interest. He thought right. out of self-interest, humanity will not destroy mm-hmm. itself. And then they did. Yeah. Yeah. Idiocracy, I think, has a little bit more growth in it. Joe does gain courage and a sense of purpose when he realizes that without courage, he'll be killed by the idiots in charge <laughs> or die at the hands of the ecological disaster. And he does have enough self-preservation uh, that he doesn't want to be killed in the the arena, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you know the idiots are feeding plants Brondo, as we said, and he tells them, you know, try water and let's try it. And there's there's a timing of hoping to save his own life to get this plant to grow, you know. And so again, it it reminds me a little bit of Soylent Green, in that there's this ecological need for greenness for for plant life. Uh, and that is what saves him is the video of the plant that's actually growing. Um, but of course the character that actually develops and learns from his sleep wake experience is Phil in Groundhog Day, the growth and the maturity that Phil gains from living the same day over and over again for several years, it appears is apparently the key <laughs> to exiting the time loop. Yeah. Once he finally tells Andy McDowell, I love you. And this is enough. Once he, discovers in himself and and tells a sleeping Andy McDowell that, you know, this is enough, just falling asleep with you. No sex, no conquest, just be doing good all day and having fun and falling asleep with you is enough. And I'm I love you and I'm satisfied. Mm-hmm. Is what breaks the spell. It's what makes him move on to tomorrow in his life and mm-hmm. in reality. Uh, and it is it is why I think it's such a classic and it has so much spiritual resonance with people of different faiths and different backgrounds mm-hmm. that personal human growth matters in this movie very much. Well, and, and the key to the characters ending up where they are is mm-hmm. taking away the possibility of a return ticket. Yeah. Um, yeah. Depriving them of any way out of their condition. Um, in in the time machine, you might recall our protagonist goes, you know, runs to the uh, runs to the temple in the movie, and the Morlocks have dragged his machine inside, um, and he finally gets in and pulls it back out. But his his confidence, his cockiness about stopping here and stopping there and checking out post war Earth and watching the fashions uh, come and go was that he can always go back. Mm-hmm. He can always take mm-hmm. his little jeweled um, wand out and screw it into the hole and pull the lever back and go all the way back to where he started and talk to his friends and be back at his house. And he can always get home safe and dry. All of the characters in these stories come, have to come to accept their circumstances. Um, Taylor figures, you know, if this is the best this planet has to offer, you know, me, I'll take off with Nova down the coast and right. we'll Nova figure something out. a couple out. of guns and a horse yeah, yeah. and I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he shaves, he, he makes himself human yeah. again. He shaves his face and off he goes. Um, because, you know, I'm, I'm capable of taking care of myself. I'm a good mm-hmm. shot. I have a good horse. I have food. And I've got a woman. What else do I need? I'm Charlton Heston. <laughs> and yes. and Joe marries the only other uh, genius on the planet who, you know, mm-hmm. was an average person back in his day and has kids. He accepts his circumstances. He's elected president of the world at some point and, and goes on to have apparently a life of some kind, you know, solving problems and attempting to uh, save the the earth from itself and save p- 
people from their stupidity. And again, the, the trick for Phil getting out of the time loop is acceptance that I can't ever get out of this. This, I'm, mm-hmm. this is my life from now on. I don't know what happened or why this happened. I've tried every other variation other than acceptance. And I just, there's a woman I love. I'm falling asleep next to her. I've done good deeds for the town. I am satisfied. And if, if this mm-hmm. never ends, then this is good enough. And that, mm-hmm. that breaks the spell. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that is a crucial difference. It's in fiction, taking away things from heroes, taking away things that people depend on really drives the plot. Right. I mean, you know, right. I mean, what's the central pillar of Game of Thrones? It's the wall. Mm-hmm. The wall mm-hmm. keeps all the bad things out. So what do you have to knock down eventually? You got to knock down the wall. Mm-hmm. How many times mm-hmm. has the Enterprise been destroyed in Star Trek? <laughs> you know, and, and take so a you, drink every yeah. time the Enterprise is surrendered or destroyed, yeah. right? Or crashed, crashed, or blown up, or was blown up as as part of a plot. Taking away things from your your protagonist, making I mean, Hogwarts is is leveled at the end of yep. uh, Harry Potter. Yep. So, it, and it's all these sort of um, indestructible things, the, these big institutional, made of stone, made of ice things that you've built your story on. That makes it, at least for me, so breathtaking and so like, oh, oh, crap, when you take them away, when you destroy a really big thing at the heart of your story. And in this case, it's these are all, you know, one way time travel stories, but it's the inescapability of their condition. What Mm -hmm. do you do when Mm -hmm. there's no way out? And that's when your true character comes out. And that's when the story gets interesting, because all during Planet of the Apes, um, he's trying to escape. Right. Well, escape to where? You know, where were you planning on going? But that was irrelevant. Um, um, there's a, a line from Lincoln where where Abraham Lincoln is talking to um, his his uh, housemate and talking about what to do after this and what happens after that and freedom. And she tells him, but freedom is the point. You yeah. know, my yeah. people have been fighting for centuries for freedom. Nobody ever asked what we do with it. What good is it? That's why we're doing this. Each of these people are looking for a way out period. Mm-hmm. And once mm-hmm. they've found there is no escape, that's when the story gets, uh, that's when true character is revealed. And that's that's what I find satisfying about each one of these stories. That's really interesting, too. It's, you mentioned in our notes about Captain America. Yeah. And uh, Captain America finds a solution to regaining what he lost at yes. the end of the MCU. He, he figures well, out a way well. to to regain his life from back in the day when he was frozen. And what does he do? He he does it with time travel. He does it with time travel. Yeah, he goes yeah. back in time yeah. and lives the life that he wanted to live. Um, yeah. Even yeah. even a movie like The Last Temptation of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh my which, goodness! Which is we're really going far afield well, here. <laughs> which is science fiction. But what is it that what is it that reveals character? It is it is being offered many ways out of what right the the your your mission is supposed to be. And your saying, mission is divinity, but you could have humanity. That yeah. was an option, and yes. you lost that. And, right, and, and you had to choose to be divine. Right, you had right. The, the, right. Jesus had to choose the wife and kids and the carpenter mm-hmm. and being a human being and mm-hmm. living a normal life is taken away from you. And this right. is not right. you know unique to fiction, obviously. All good fiction presents its protagonist, uh, whoever they may be, with a critical choice about what direction they're going to take, and mm-hmm. their their characters revealed in the choices they make. And in in this these sorts of time travel stories, 
escape is removed from the possi- from possibility. So now uh, we do want to do some honorable mentions. For example, mm-hmm. there is a story, a novel called The Sleeper Awakes by H.G. Wells, which explains the whole plot in the title. <laughs> the Sleeper yeah. Awakes. Oh, look, a bunch of time has passed and things have changed and I will describe them to you. Um, Captain America, who went down in the ice, uh, became the Capsicle, as, as he was referred to in the comics many times, or at least by comic book fans, and is revived 70 years later. And catching him up on stuff that has happened ha- was a running joke, is a running joke in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and speaking of the MCU, we want to have honorable mention given to everyone who was blipped back into existence in the Avengers Endgame. Yep. These right, are all people right. who, who, who went to bed or, or were in an aircraft or mid-stride or having sex or on the toilet or doing whatever they were doing and, and, and woke up and it's five years later. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would love to see that story. Um, we see where those people collide with the present day in WandaVision. And we see that in the in the last Spider-Man movie. But I'd love to see sort of how do you adapt to a sudden change? I, I know that in the last Spider-Man movie, Aunt May, I believe, has a business or has a works for a community organization that tries to help get people reinserted back into life. Because just like Rip Van Winkle, people are living in their houses now. Um, their spouse may have moved on, married someone else, and mm-hmm. their their mm-hmm. world has changed completely. So how do you deal with that? Uh, and of if course, you don't mind, I'd like to add one last story that sure. I haven't, I have to admit, I haven't read yet, but it sounds very intriguing. There's a new book out, uh, I think it came out last year called Una Out of Order, O-O-N-A, Una Out of oh. Order. It's by Margarita Montemore, and it's in my pile of books to read. Uh, it is about a woman who, on New Year's Eve, 1982, uh, it's about to turn, she's about to turn 19. She'll turn 19 on January 1st. And she's so excited. It's her 18th year, you know, and it's New Year's Eve, et cetera. And boom, the clock strikes 12 and she's 51 years old. And she's in this beautiful house and she's got money and she's got friends and so forth. But she's 51 years old. And she learns uh, in the early part of the book that every New Year's at the stroke of midnight, she will live another year of her life out of order. Uh. And she remembers what where she was and what happened in her 19th year and her 51st year and so on and so forth. But she has to live these years out of order and how her character develops and how her relationships develop within that context. It really sounds interesting, like a a fun way to tell a story. I'm looking forward to reading it. I'm looking forward to you telling me about it once you've read it. Because (laughs) I'm going to tell you, I'm going to sit in bed and tell you about it as I'm reading it. That's right. (laughs) I I do want to add a couple more things. Um, One of the, key features of a lot of time travel stories is that the problems you confront now when in, in your travels can mm-hmm. be fixed and not escape from necessarily. That's, that's a key point, but you can go back in time and fix what went wrong. Mm-hmm. You can travel to the past and, and, and uh, Marty McFly, you know, can fix his father's life, can, right, can get right. his father and mother hooked up so he can, you know, so he can be born. Um, mm-hmm. That whatever's going wrong right now, and and that is simply not the case in these stories. There is no fix to the ecological crisis in uh, Idiocracy other than staying there and fixing it. Mm-hmm. And there is no fix to Phil's condition in Groundhog Day, but right. but accepting it and dealing with right. it. And and again, that's it's very powerful when you when you, you in every other story, there's a way to to cook the books again. 
to yeah. to get yeah. Earth back on track, get something back to where it was, and you can't do that in these things. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, and of mm -hmm. course, we would be remiss if we didn't mention Philip J. Fry of Futurama. Um, oh yeah, the entire series is based on Philip Fry, our man, uh, having an accident in 1999 uh, at a cryogenics lab where he's delivering pizza, and then he awakes uh, in the 31st century and goes to work for a delivery company. So, and it's a hilarious show. It is well written, and it's really good science fiction. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a, there's mm -hmm. so much in the writers' room, obviously, and, and the creators of the show had so much reverence for the genre. They borrow from yes, everybody, every right. kind of story you can imagine. They even sort of wink to the audience and let them know, yeah, we read that too, and that's what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We also uh, could talk a little bit about unconsciousness as a way of traveling. Um, this isn't strictly the genre we're referring to, but it's very similar. And you can get similar results in terms of the story you might be working on now. So a w The Wizard of Oz or mm -hmm. Connecticut yeah. Yankee and King Arthur's Court, both built on protagonists getting knocked out before waking up in an unexpected world. Uh, and I'm sure those of you out there listening can think of others. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. Finally, we could also mention the movie Sleeper, but I don't think we will. Yeah, we decided we're not going to talk about Woody Allen movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's no. just no. Just a shame because that's a good one, but uh, we're nope. just not going to go there. Nope, we're we're canceling um, that one. Sorry. Canceled. Thank you so much for listening. Science Fiction University is a project of DGBG Productions. You can support the show by donating via Patreon. Details at our website, sciencefictionuniversity.com. Or if you're so inclined, you can send a check to P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.